This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin schools with a certain level of crimes would be required to hire police officers and station them in their buildings under a Republican bill that passed in the state assembly today. The Associated Press reports that if a school has more than 100 criminal incidents in a semester, with 25 resulting in an arrest, they would have to hire an armed school resource officer to work at the school. The legislation comes after the state's two largest districts in Milwaukee and Madison voted in 2020 to remove school resource officers. Republican supporters say the measure would provide needed school safety, while Democratic lawmakers called it a political attack on urban school districts. A spokesperson for the governor didn't comment whether he would sign it. Assembly Republicans also voted today on a technical maneuver to keep allowing so-called conversion therapy in Wisconsin. The state board banned the discredited practice of trying to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity last year. Republican lawmakers suspended a ban uh, a month later. By voting today to stall a bill in committee, it postpones any changes until at least 2024. A northern Wisconsin tribal nation has agreed to temporarily reopen roads that cross reservation land, restoring access to non-tribal homeowners. The Lac de Flambeau Band of Lake Superior Chippewa erected barricades on four roads at the end of January as part of an ongoing dispute over property easements, reported Wisconsin Public Radio. These roads are owned by the town of Lac de Flambeau and are the only way for about 65 non-tribal properties for access. The temporary agreement will keep the roads open for 90 days to allow for negotiations in exchange for $60,000 paid to the tribe. The disagreement surrounds old land easements for the roads that expired a decade ago. The tribal nation is seeking $20 million for new road agreements, attorney's fees, and what they claim is a decade of trespassing. University of Wisconsin-Madison Provost John Carl Schultz has been hired as president of the University of Oregon, UW announced yesterday. Schultz is set to start in this new role on July 1st. He had already planned to step down as provost this summer to return to a teaching position in the UW-Madison Department of Economics. Schultz became provost in 2019 and served as interim chancellor following the departure of Rebecca Blank last year. The university is currently looking for a new provost, and finalists will visit the campus after spring break, UW administrators announced. The Wisconsin Supreme Court heard arguments yesterday in a case over how local governments can raise money to pay for road projects, reports Wisconsin Examiner. The case was brought against the town of Buchanan in Outagamie County after it created a, quote, transportation utility district, unquote, as a way to collect funds from property owners to pay for road construction and maintenance outside the regular property tax system. The anti-tax group Wisconsin Property Taxpayers, Inc. sued the town over the policy with help from the conservative legal group Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. They argued that the town is violating state levy limits because the transportation district fees amount to a property tax. Lawyers for the town of Buchanan argue that the fees are assessed based on how likely property owners are to use transportation infrastructure. They say many municipalities are considering similar policies and that the Supreme Court ruling would have an impact across the state. Plans to demolish a building on Madison's east side and replace it with a large housing development took a step forward this week. The city's plan commission voted unanimously yesterday to allow a Chicago developer to raise the Filene House office building to make way for a five-story development with more than 300 housing units. 
The building on Sherman Avenue next to Tenney Park was the first permanent office for the Credit Union National Association. Opponents of the development unsuccessfully sought to have the building designated as a historic landmark earlier this year. The City Council will consider final land use approvals for the project later this month. And now on to today's top stories. With just a few weeks to go before the spring election, the candidates for Madison mayor delivered stinging words at a debate last night as they clashed on what they thought was the best path path forward for the city. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has the story. Um, Just a question. Um, Did you take the bus here? No, because we currently don't have a bus rapid transit system. Okay, all right. With the spring general election just three weeks away, candidates were heated at last night's mayoral debate. Tackling housing and zoning, the city's budget deficit, Madison schools, and public transit. The debate, hosted by the University Hill Farms Neighborhood Association, took place at the Westside Covenant Presbyterian Church. Gloria Reyes, former Madison Metropolitan School Board President and Deputy Mayor under Paul Soglin, took charge before the debate even began, taking the microphone to introduce herself to the audience. That was cut short after an organizer asked Reyes to wait until the event formally began. As with other debates, housing and zoning ordinances were the top issue for both of the candidates last night. Under current projections, the city is expected to see 70,000 new residents by 2040. While both candidates agree that more housing needs to be built, they differ greatly in how they intend to accomplish that task. Reyes has criticized incumbent mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway for her strategy, saying that the city has not done a good enough job hearing from the community before building new housing structures. As mayor, you can't rely on developers and staff solely on deciding the future of this city. We need a mayor that's going to stand up for the residents of this city and develop a plan of how we move forward. And so what we're seeing is that we are seeing zoning changes and policies being thrown out there by council members without an engaged process and a leader that's going to lead us through this housing crisis. But Rhodes-Conway fired back, saying that while the city can control things like zoning ordinances, they can't tell a developer what and where they are going to build. I'm not sure if my opponent is advocating for Marxism or Stalinism, uh, but we live in a capitalist society, and generally the way land use development works is people who own the land get to decide what they'd like to do with it, and they bring in proposals to city to see if those proposals are consistent with our zoning, with our land use planning, and with what the community can support. That's the way it's been done for years. It's the way it will continue to be done. And we lead on what we would like to see in our community through things like the comprehensive plan and like neighborhood plans, uh, which is an opportunity for us all to engage and set a vision for what we'd like in our community. Reyes also pointed to the need to engage MMSD in more decisions about housing strategy and says the incumbent hasn't engaged the school board in enough decisions about housing. Overall, Reyes says that the mayor's office needs to have more open communication with the school district. Reyes says that when she was the school board president during the pandemic, she felt like the city left the schools out to dry. 
Rhodes-Conway, though, pointed to her weekly meetings with MMSD Superintendent Carlton Jenkins throughout the pandemic. There, she says that they worked on finding ways to support children both with their learning and with other needs that in-person school provided, such as food and security. Still, Rhodes-Conway pointed out that the Madison Metro School Board is its own entity, and while a seat is open to a representative from the school district on the city's plan commission, nobody has offered to take up the seat. Reyes says that just offering a seat on a city committee, however, is not enough. She says that the mayor's office should be working with the district not only to ensure that schools have high enrollment, but to create more after-school programs for students. Staying on the topic of schools, the candidates were asked to weigh in on the return of police officers to Madison schools. School resource officers, or SROs, were present in MMSD high schools until 2020 when the Black Lives Matter protests put increased scrutiny on police officers, both in schools and the community at large. While Reyes, who was serving as school board president at the time and a former Madison police officer, initially backed the inclusion of SROs in high schools. She later flipped her position after public demonstrations outside her home. Nearly three years later, Reyes says that it's time to reevaluate the decision to remove SROs from Madison schools. You know, one of my responsibilities as mayor is to assure all residents and staff and community are safe. And so I don't, I can't just leave it up to the school board and the school district. They do have the authority to make those decisions, but I'm going to ensure by working with the Madison Police Department, in, ensuring that we are supporting our Madison Police Department, giving them the resources that they need to engage and really fill that gap that they had while they were in schools, right? Building trust, building relationships. Rhodes-Conway, meanwhile, declined to take a side either way, saying that this is a decision to be made by the school board. You know, I think school safety is a really important question for our community, but there are a number of ways for us to create safe schools, not just through school resource officers. And I'm interested in working with the district in whatever capacity they want to make sure that students are safe not just in schools, but outside of schools as well. And that's the work that we've been doing over the past four years. One of the final topics of debate was one of the incumbent mayor's biggest passion projects, public transportation. With bus rapid transit set to go into effect next year and the bus system's network redesign scheduled to begin later this summer, Rhodes-Conway has worked to update the city's public transit system since she was first elected in 2019. She says that she is excited to see the new network redesign come into effect. The network redesign is looking at our, frankly, antiquated bus system that is dependent on the transfer points and has created a situation which is both not fit for our current land use patterns because our employment centers, instead of just being downtown and campus, are now all across our community but also was resulting in deeply inequitable outcomes where people of color were having to transfer much more than white people and were having much longer transit times. Reyes says that not only is she concerned about the price tag, but she worries that the new bus routes will leave black and low-income residents out in the cold. 
When first designing the routes, the city decided on a plan that would cause some residents to walk further to get to their bus stop in exchange for faster bus service. While the city did conduct an equity report on the new system, which found that the new routes would bring more good than harm to black and low-income residents, Reyes says that the one report is not enough. The issue around this is that the same person, the same entity, consultant that did the redesign is the same consultant that did the equity analysis. That's not right. That is not fair for the residents of this city. We deserve better. We deserve a transit system that works for everybody. And if you're going to talk about equity and be a progressive mayor and talk about equity, then you actually have to see it through and make sure that we don't have unintended consequences. The two candidates will meet again tonight at 7 at the Westminster Presbyterian Church. That debate is hosted by the Marlboro Nakoma Neighborhood Association and moderated by WORT's own Sholly Pittman. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wookiehout. With the April 3rd spring election approaching quickly, we continue our coverage of Madison's Alder races with a trip to District 3 on the far east side. Matt Van Epperen is one of the two candidates running for the Alder seat in that district and spoke with WRT producer Nate Wuggiehout earlier today. The 2023 spring general election is less than one month away, and this year there are 14 Alder districts appearing on the ballot. One of those districts is District 3 on the city's east side, containing the High Stand and Rolling Meadows neighborhoods. Matt Van Epperen is one of the candidates running for that Alder seat in District 3 and joins me now by phone. Matt, thank you so much for, for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me on. And just to begin, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Who, who are you? So, um, as you said, I'm mapping up and I'm running for Alder here on the far east side of Madison. My most important titles to me are father and husband. My son is one years old. Um, and that's really one of the main reasons why I got into the race. Um, you know, looking at the problems facing our communities, yet the opportunities that exist for us. And then looking inside my own home at my son, thinking of the youth in our communities, thinking of you know, how, how can we make sure that Madison in, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years into the future, that it's a good place for, for people to be and for people to, to come and live. So that's one of the main reasons that I ran. And, you know, he's, he's the light of my life. But I, I work for UW-Madison, uh, so I'm a state employee, and I live over here on the far east side of Madison, Grandview Commons. And, and you sort of touched on it a little bit there, Matt, but why are you running for, for Alder here? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's, there's issues in our communities that uh, you know, I think we need to, to kind of face head on. Um, one, I think everyone is talking about, right, and that's, that's affordable housing. As Madison continues to grow, and, you know, I guess it's not just Madison. It's, you know, our, our neighboring municipalities, Sun Prairie, Fitchburg, Verona, you know, all, everywhere in Dane County is growing so fast. So it's not just the Madison issue, but Madison is really the center of uh, the population growth in our state. And so, you know, to make sure there's not just affordable housing, but housing options for people. If people want to live here in our community, like they should be able to. You know, my wife and I chose to live here. We love it. Um, and I think other people should have that opportunity as well. So, you know, that's that's one of the main reasons why I ran. You know, there, there needs to be, you know, different housing options. It needs to be affordable. Um, housing security is a huge issue. And, you know, I, I think it's a right. And, you know, another reason I ran is public safety. Now, having having a child looking at, you know, everything that's going on in our community, we need to make sure that, that public safety is talked about. 
Um, and I think it's certainly being talked about more so now as, as we're getting closer to the election. And, and I hope the mayor and, you know, whoever is elected as an alder continues to focus on public safety. Uh, but public safety, to me, it's more than just the criminal public safety risk. And I think that's where more of the focus is on when people talk about public safety is that criminal behavior. And it certainly plays a big role. And so, you know, when when we focus on public safety, yes, like we need to look at, you know, sort of the underlying causes of that criminal behavior, whether it's, you know, food insecurity, housing insecurity, jobs, health, whatever it may be, schooling. Uh, we need to focus on those underlying issues to help. Um, and I, I think statistically speaking, at least Madison is a safe and, and you know, crime is reducing. But public safety risk to me also encompasses sort of that non-criminal public safety aspect. So that's things like transportation infrastructure. Right here in District 3, where I live in Grandview Commons, is kind of separated from other portions of the district by I-90. And so uh, the road that my wife and I take to get, you know, other places in Madison is that Milwaukee Street Bridge over I-90, which is incredibly narrow. Um, a lot of people bring that up that eventually, you know, as unfortunate as it is to say, like it's, it's only a matter of time before there's a fatality there. So working on those transportation infrastructure public safety risks is, is a huge thing that I think the city and that the city needs to focus on. I think that public safety risk, that non-criminal, it also involves things like environmental infrastructure. You know, well, 15, I believe, over here on the east side has been off for a while because of the PFAS found in the water. So, you know, looking at those risks, those non-criminal public safety risks to people, health concerns, infrastructure, you know, that sort of thing is a huge thing that, that I think we need to focus on. Now, Matt, just sticking with you a little while longer here, uh, what, what do you do in your spare time? Uh, my spare time? Um, well, having a one-year-old doesn't allow for too much spare time. So um, I guess when I, when I do have spare time, uh, we just like spending time together. My wife, my son, and I um, go for walks in the neighborhood, do some stuff. Spending time with my son is probably the most favorite thing I have to do. I, I love being his dad. And, you know, I, I know being an alder would take me away from him for a little bit, but, you know, that's, that's something I'm, I'm willing to, to sacrifice because I know I'm, I'm doing it for him and I'm doing it for, for others in the community. So when I have free time, uh, I spend it with him as much as I can. And now I want to take an eye at a couple of the, the key issues facing Madison right now. And, and you mentioned transportation and now the bus rapid transit set to take into effect next year, network redesign coming up down the pipeline this year. Uh, how, how do you feel about those projects? Yeah, I think, I think there's certainly benefits to it. You know, it more rapidly, obviously because of the name, it more rapidly connects people to places. I think that's, that's a positive. That's a benefit. I think where a lot of the concern lies among people who aren't all in on it is the fact that you're losing a lot of accessibility for those living in certain neighborhoods. Um, and so, you know, with, with BRT, with the redesign, um, I think accessibility is a huge issue that, that we need to focus on so it doesn't become more of an issue. So some of the, some of the trans, transits like through neighborhood service, you know, that, that is being cut. People are going to have to walk longer to their bus stop. And so while they might be getting from point A to point B quicker, getting to point A from where they're starting, you know, wherever their home or their work or, you know, wherever they are, that takes longer. That 
that is, you know, a consequence of the, the network redesign and, and BRT. So I, I think, I think the purpose of BRT, I think the purpose of the redesign, I, I think that's all starting from uh, a good place. Uh, but uh, we can't lose sight of the fact that accessibility is a huge issue. And for people to lose accessibility to public transit, it doesn't matter if you're getting from point A to point B quicker because people are going to be less likely to use it uh, if they have to, you know, find other ways to get to that point A to begin with. Now, I want to take an eye at your specific district there, District 3. Uh, like I said, it's on the far east side there, just south of the Dane County Airport. What are a few specific issues facing District 3? What What have you heard from potential constituents? Yeah, uh, well, I think that Milwaukee Street Bridge, you know, while collecting signatures, you know, while out campaigning pre-primary and everything, that was, the, I think, the most common thing brought up, uh, at least in Grandview Commons here. Uh, because that's that's what a lot of people use to get towards the inner city is is that Milwaukee Street Bridge, um, and so you know I, I think we need to provide either uh, a pedestrian bridge or you know work with other leaders in our our county and the state to kind of provide some more safety there. Um, but I think affordable housing is is another huge issue. You know, my wife and I bought our house in July 2022, and July 2021. And so, I mean, the interest rates were great, but the prices of the homes, because it was so competitive and there wasn't as much inventory, were going for like astronomically high prices. And so I, I think, you know, affordable housing, not just for single family homes, because, you know, that's your, that's your one purchase and you have your mortgage, but, you know, for rents, for apartments and other places where it's monthly, uh, maybe it, it's a huge issue, you know, trying to figure out how to supply more inventory throughout the city or, you know, even in our in our district to make sure that, you know, the rents aren't rising because there's less inventory. So I, I think those are two of the issues, um, you know, the economic aspect, the environmental aspect, like I said, the, the well 15 has been off for a while. I think those also play a role. And I think a lot of people have their attention on them. But I don't, I haven't heard that those are the main issues for a lot of people, but it's certainly worth paying attention to um, you know, whoever ends up being elected from this district and for the city. I've been talking with Matt Van Epperen, one of the candidates running in the spring general election for District 3. And like Matt said, that election will take place on April 4th. Matt, thank you so much for talking with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Since 2005, Indigenous leaders have taken center stage at the state capitol once a year for Wisconsin's State of the Tribes address, highlighting the current needs and challenges facing the state's 11 federally recognized tribal nations. This year, the speaker was Robert Van Zyl, chairman of the Sukagan Sukajan. Chippewa community in northern Wisconsin. Focusing on public health, Van Zyl delivered the annual address earlier today. This is just a portion of more than an hour-long speech. The Sakagan Chippewa tribe, along with many other tribes, are facing critical health care challenges. My tribe is located 45 
minutes from any emergency care setting. With that being said, there's a large burden put on tribes to act as emergency caregivers to stabilize patients until we can get them to a facility. Many of our tribes are long distances away from emergency care facilities. The tribes face a huge barrier with recruiting and retaining medical staff since the pandemic. Wages of healthcare professionals have skyrocketed. It's very difficult for a tribe to compete with the wages for healthcare professionals at this time. Tribes work on very limited funds from the Indian Healthcare Services, which barely covers wages. Wage pressure and difficulty recruiting medical talent, rural areas are really hurting and hindering quality care for patient care. So how can the state help? A law to change, to allow tribes to be able to function with nurse practitioners without physicians supervision would be very helpful in delivering quality health care. <clears throat> but not allowing nurse practitioners to run clinic patients are suffering and not receiving the quality care and the access to health care required for a healthy population. As we all know, the cost of unhealthy people essentially functions as a tax on the state, which costs us all. Studies show nurse practitioners deliver healthcare outcomes comparable to those of physicians when providing primary healthcare and preventive services. These same studies also found similar levels of patient satisfactions in outcomes for blood pressure and blood glucose control, health status, health stats in emergency department visits, and hospitalization. When patients were treated by nurse practitioners compared with physicians. By allowing nurse practitioners to run health care and the state would help address primary care provider shortages for medically and geographically underserved populations such as those in rural areas and on reservations. This strategy would improve access to high quality, cost efficient healthcare desperately needed in these areas. Although challenges, another challenge, challenges in insurance. Tribes were promised free healthcare by federal government in exchange for millions of acres of tribal land. And I realize that the state did not make this promise, but bear with me. I believe there's an opportunity for us to work together to improve healthcare access and health outcomes, reducing negative impacts on the state. The amount of federal government gives the Indian, Indian health services to, for distribution Two tribes does not even cost ha half the cost of operating a tribal health care facility. Based on the promise made by the federal government, tribal people should all qualify for Medicaid. 
There should be no poverty for tribal members. Okay, so where's the opportunity for us to work together? To find a solution that benefits tribes in Wisconsin and the state of Wisconsin, I should say. Wisconsin Medicaid is a joint and federal and state program that provides high quality care, coverage, long-term care, and other services to millions, I'm sorry, and other services to over one million Wisconsin residents. Since Wisconsin Medicaid is jointly funded by the federal government and the state, it seems there is an opportunity for states to join tribes in making the case to the federal government that it has not delivered on its promise of health care for tribal members. Consider what the savings could be to the state if the federal government fully funded tribal health care. That's an interesting outcome that I believe would result in significant savings, improved population, health, and improved the, the state's finances. Significant parts of achieving a health population statewide also requires ongoing attention and investment in mental health. Mental health care, untreated mental health challenges contribute to substance abuse, homelessness, unemployment, to name a few areas that negatively impact all communities. There's no question investment in mental health services accessibility will positively impact all of our communities. As it pertains to stemming the deadly wave of substance abuse, there's a desired need for greater investment in law enforcement and legal action against those supplying our communities with these substances. Far too many, far too many families have experienced loss of loved ones. Far too many of our youth have been lost to this plague that knows no boundaries. Drugs don't discriminate by race, household, or even geography. The epidemic, the opioid epidemic is ravaging communities statewide and taxing the system to manage this plague on society. We need to work together across all aspects of emergency services, treatment, law enforcement, prosecution, and judiciary to win this fight. Support for our youth treatment facility in Northwoods would improve our ability to provide people battling substance abuse with treatment, recovery, support as they return to their communities. We ask you to partner with us to see this through to completion. <clears throat> All 11 tribes have already 
contributed funds to for this purchased property to locate a treatment facility in a town of Cassin. It's a treatment facility for adolescents, and we're trying to um, work through this. We need the state's help and assistance to make this happen. We, um, how you say, the 11 tribes, we ponied up cash, money, to make this happen. So we're doing our part. We need your help. <clears throat> Through joint investments in wellness, treatment, law enforcement, and court solutions, we believe together tribal governments in partnership with the state have an opportunity to help and preserve and protect our communities. The next opportunity for us to work together on involves illegal gaming. Statewide and its impact on taxpayers and consumers across Wisconsin. It's estimated millions of dollars of taxable revenue is not collected on the estimated 60,000 gaming machines across Wisconsin. Should I say that again? Yes, this is significant revenue being earned by taverns in competition with the tribal casinos, but this topic encompasses significant concerns with greater impact than just revenue fights. Beyond that, tribes were promised an exclusive gaming right within Wisconsin. The state has an obligation to ensure the integrity of the products being produced and offered to the Wisconsin consumer. For nearly every other game and service offered to Wisconsin consumers, there are proper protections in place. Yet, tavern gaming machines are a glaring example of a product that is offered to Wisconsin consumers with little or no regulations. The Wisconsin tavern gaming environment is ripe for consumers to be misled and ripped off. Equally concerning is the revenue loss that could offset the tax burden on Wisconsin taxpayers. Without proper protections in place, consumers are left to wonder if tavern gaming manufacturers, suppliers, operators are manipulating devices for personal gain. You call it dishonesty or theft. Wisconsin consumers are also knowingly and unknowingly enjoying the benefits of winning taxable payouts on tavern gaming devices without any records or requirements to pay applicable taxes on their winnings. There should never be a product or service allowed to be sold to, our, to or experienced by consumers in the state of Wisconsin that significantly lack the appropriate regulations and consumer protection that are required to be in place for the benefit of Wisconsin consumers. The state of Wisconsin has a significant responsibility to either eliminate illegal tavern gaming environment or 
significantly and formally address the glaring lack of regulatory oversight and consumer protection that currently exists in the tavern gaming environment. Not to act on either of these options deprive the state of valuable revenue and ability to provide tax relief to its citizens. Furthermore, it exposes those same citizens to an unregulated gaming and potentially ill-gotten games from hard-working men and women of Wisconsin. Beyond getting the grasp on lost revenue from illegal gaming and providing consumer protection, there's another opportunity for the state and the tribes to collaborate on casino revenues for greater impact on tribal communities. We are aware that every tribe as well as the state benefit from tribal casino revenue. Each of our tribes has casinos. Depending on the location, casino revenues vary drastically. For most of us, revenue from gaming goes to help our members meet basic needs, health, housing, heating, education, and more. Once those funds are exhausted, most of us fall short of providing basic services, much less having enough to invest in economic diversity. Economic diversification. For our tribes to make strides toward economic self-sustainability, we must diversify our economic engines beyond casino revenue. We believe there's an opportunity and a need to re-examine and share gaming revenue as means to facilitate tribal economic diversification, efforts to meet the basic needs of our people. Similar to the state, corporate tax income the rate for casino is, on average, 7 to 10%. The total amount contributed by tribes annually has averaged about $60 million. About half of that amount goes into general purpose revenue, and the other half gets appropriated between state programs and tribal programs. Of the funds appropriated, about 60% go to state programs and 40% to the tribal programs. About 12 million of those dollars provides funding for 25 to 30 separate tribal programs. Funding levels for these programs have been frozen for the past 20 years. These programs are vital to our tribes as you consider significant increased shared revenue to counties, municipalities. We believe there is a greater benefit to increasing funding for important tribal programs as well. That was Robert Van Zyl, chairman of the Sukhajan Chippewa community, giving the annual State of the Tribes address in the state capitol earlier today. That was just a portion of his address, which you can find in full at pbswisconsin.org. While it may not feel like it outside, spring is less than one week away, and for Mother Nature, that means one thing, babies. 
In the coming weeks, our trees, wood piles, and lawns will all play host to nests for baby squirrels, rabbits, and even ducks. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg reminds us to double-check our workspaces before we start any yard work this spring. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about nesting during the breeding season, because guess what? It is officially baby season already. We have had our first baby owl admitted to the Wildlife Center in the last week, and that got me thinking about what kind of messaging we want to talk about during this time of year. So I want to start by saying, yes, owls are going to kind of be in our big, you know, admissions frequency right now because it's March, but March into April and then into May is really just the start of our baby season. So it's not just owls. I wanted to mention that our wildlife center and our rehabilitators really strongly advise people to survey survey their yards right now before baby animals are arriving, especially if you're doing projects like landscaping. I would say that our number one spot that baby bunnies are found in the backyard are in mulch piles. And so sometimes if you're thinking about, oh, you know, the snow is all gone, it's melting, it's time to get the weeding going and the, you know, maybe rototilling in the garden and looking at pruning or clipping back items from, you know, winter that has died off. We worry about injuries to wildlife and especially disturbing the nest of our baby animals during this time of year because they are definitely already nesting and some are even giving birth already. Baby squirrels have been found in our area and they're going to be in more of our tree cavities and their paper nests, but it's still something to think about if you're doing any sort of yard work. So most young animals like bunnies or birds do stay in their nest for up to about three to four weeks, and it's a short period of time, but if you find them, the delay that you provide by not doing that landscaping or disturbing the area can truly save their lives. So what I'm talking about is checking the areas before you enter a shovel or a rake or a pitchfork so that we are avoiding any injuries to baby wildlife. That is, yes, sadly, something that we see very frequently in our field is the animal gets injured because someone sticks a shovel in the mulch pile before looking to see if the nest material from a mama bunny is there. And then the babies get um, injuries, physical trauma, and that's really, really sad to see. Other things that we very frequently see are people using chainsaws to take out certain limbs of a branch of a tree, but maybe they don't notice that there is a hole or down the hole is some sort of nest from a cavity nesting species. Could be an owl, barred owls, very common. Squirrels are probably the most common. And then they accidentally get a chainsaw injury. And that is um, a very you know horrific thing to have happen. And we wanna try to avoid that at all costs. So use your phone with a flashlight if you need to, just to peek down into a cavity nest. You can use a mirror with a light. Something to inspect in there, and if possible, just listen. And that's going to be your least amount of disturbance by putting your ear up to that cavity nest and seeing if you hear chirps or if you hear any sort of, you know, chipping noises or baby owls. They make actually kind of really weird raspy noises. Or observing that area for any sort of parents using an open hollow, whether it's putting a camera on there, if you've got like an outside, you know, GoPro or Google Nest or some sort of camera, you can point towards that hole. Or if you can just sit and observe it for a frequent amount of time, 
because they're going to be coming back to visit their babies for feeding very frequently once they're born. Sometimes, though, if they're sitting on eggs, if they're birds, it can be very quiet. So it's not always going to be perfect, but it's worth checking first before you start doing anything. Other types of nests besides cavity nesting dwelling species, you know, we've got a lot of birds that are going to start making their cup-shaped nests, like your robins and your cardinals and your hummingbirds. So really looking in some of those dense vegetation trees or shrubs for bird nests before you start doing anything like lopping or taking down limbs. Sometimes they'll just use birdhouses and cavities, which is great. And that's another alternative site that you can offer for birds in your backyard. So cavity nesting birds are going to be bluebirds, chickadees, nuthatches, woodpeckers, even some owls, depending on how big of a nest box we're talking about. And so those can be great if you can hang them up on a tree so that you don't have to worry necessarily about them going into the native cavity nest that if you had to do any sort of landscaping work or tree work, then they're not going to necessarily be affected. We've got hanging nests, which will be our orioles here soon into the summer. You know, they're going to build their own nests by weaving material together into this little gourd-shaped hanging thing, which is pretty exciting. But then don't forget about the ground nesters, because ducks are going to be nesting here at like any time soon. And yes, believe it or not, a mama duck is probably going to nest in your backyard somewhere, and it might not be anywhere near water. It could be miles away. And yes, that seems very odd, but it's natural duck behavior for mallards, for example. They could have a clutch of 12 to 14 eggs, and that clutch of 12 to 14 eggs could be in your mulch pile right next to your house, and the next nearest water source could be a mile away. And that's okay. They're going to be safe because mom is putting them there so that she's not attracting predators near the water because water is something all animals need, right? Uh, Hydration, especially in a lakes region like ours. And so actually nesting further away from water in the hopes that she can lead her babies to water later, even if it's a mile, is safer than nesting right next to the water where animals are always going to be present trying to drink and get the hydration that they need, especially predators. So in the case of ducks nesting in your backyard, They are gonna probably blend in. They'll be brownish in coloration, most female ducks are. They're gonna have a lot of their belly feathers plucked out to surround the nest for insulation because those dowdy feathers are very warm to insulate their eggs. And they're gonna sit on them for about a month. So if you see a duck that has decided your backyard is the spot to be, just be quiet around them. Don't offer food or water or anything. Just leave her alone, leave her be. They are birds making the best choice. They truly know what's best for their babies, even if it sounds like relocating would be a good idea, or maybe you know, you're trying to move her, you're potentially offering the opportunity for those eggs to be abandoned. So definitely a leave them be. Try to, again, go around your yard and survey everywhere that you can, each corner before you actually start in on a project. And that means that our baby wildlife will be much more safe. And should also mention, you probably want to keep your pets inside while you're doing the surveying. Because if you're going to bring your dog to come with you, there's a chance that they're going to try to grab any sort of nesting duck or nesting bunny or anything that's on the ground. So keep your pets away. Keep kids away as much as possible. I know they love the wildlife, but it, it is very stressful for wildlife during this time period where they're trying to reproduce and have their babies. So if you care, leave them there is the DNR's wonderful quote that I like to say all the time. It's spring season, so please, hopefully, folks will take a lot of this to heart, and it's information that everybody should know, and if you have questions about it, you can always give us a call. Our Wildlife Rehabilitation Center here in Madison is happy to answer your questions, and our phone number is 608-287-3235. Otherwise, thanks for listening today on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. 
And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein Wilson. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg. Dave Lawrenson engineered this show. Nate Buggyhouse produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast and subscribe wherever you follow the latest podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enrico Patio. Good night.